We are in Philippians. Uh, we are going to um, go through uh, verses 12 through 26 in chapter 1 this evening. Um, before we get there, I wanted to do a quick recap of, of last week's message because of the President's, uh, holiday, President's Day holiday and um, Valentine's Day for all you romantics that went off and did your thing. Um, just wanted to do a quick recap, but a little differently, um, so that for those of you that were here, uh, you don't have to hear a, a repeat message. So it's been about nine months now that uh, I've been teaching here at Regeneration and the uh, elders, John Hartman, Kevin Kenny, Tom Green, Tony DeWeese, along with me, have have been working together in this new partnership in, in shared leadership. And there are two questions that I'm asked uh, most frequently. And the first one is, how are you guys doing? We're just doing really bad. No, I'm kidding. We're doing really well. Um, of, of, of course, there's always things that we can improve, but overall, I think we're doing quite well. And uh, what's not to like? I mean, they're working with me. The other question that comes up a lot revolves around um, what's going on at Regen or what's going on with Regen. What direction are we heading or what's Regen's vision? What are, what are things going to look like in the future? What's going to happen here? What are God's plans for this church regarding outreach, worship, things we're supposed to do or stop doing? Uh, how are we going to do church? But on, on a more personal level, I, I, I have a question for you. What's going on with you? Where are you heading? What's the vision that God has for your life, whether in work, in school, relationships? For each one of us to ask ourselves, God, what are you calling me to? What's happening in your heart? And how are we going to cultivate spirits of generosity while living in the most materialistic nation in the world? And rather than accumulating more stuff for ourselves, set our resources free to do kingdom work. How do we introduce people to Jesus? How are we going to establish goals and gauge our effectiveness so that we, we do the best, the smartest planning that we're capable of and, and, and simultaneously remain faithful and prayerful, trusting in God to, to be open to whatever he has in store for us? Well, that's why Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church. All these questions running through their heads. And last week we briefly went over Acts chapter 16 to contextualize the beginning of the church at Philippi. And it was started by this motley crew, uh, much like Regen was almost eight years ago. And the first people at the Philippian church were a businesswoman and a jailer. And I have this picture of uh, Philippi. That, that's Philippi. Um, when we were there uh, a while ago or a couple years ago. And, and so this businesswoman, Lydia, bankrolled the church. And, and there was this jailer. And Paul and Silas went to Philippi, and I have another slide here. There's Paul and Silas there. You didn't know? And, and there's another one there. You didn't know that Silas was Chinese, did you? And Paul was the size of Zacchaeus, but they're there. And, and they found themselves imprisoned, imprisoned. This is this, there, there's the prison. That's the jail. Really? Uh, in Philippi, that, that's 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 one of the jail cells and and an earthquake struck and that prison broke open and they were free to escape. Well, the jailer was going to take his own life because of this. And so here's another slide. So there's the jailer taking um, all away. That's actually my friend, Duran, a really good friend of mine who is our tour guide. And that's my daughter, Isabella. Um, and there's another one. There they are. He's adopted her as his her grandfather. So. Anyway, Paul said um, in Acts chapter 16, verse 28, do yourself no harm for for we are all here. And that, that jailer became a follower of Jesus. And that's how the Philippian church was started. It's pretty far from any other church. I mean, Philippi is in Europe. In fact, it's the first church in Europe. Do we have a slide for that? too? Or we don't. OK, so it's it's in if you can imagine the the, B, the boot of Italy and then Greece and it's right up. In the Macedonian region, that's that's where it's at. And as a quick review, Philippi was a Roman colony and people around Philippi spoke Greek, but they were residents of, of uh, uh, the residents of Philippi, but citizens of Rome. And as citizens of Rome, they knew about power. They knew about status. They knew about wealth. 
And in the middle of all this, birthed this small little church in Philippi. And keep in mind that this is a very pluralistic society, especially with religion. Of course, there was the Roman emperor who was worshipped, but there were also the, the different Roman gods, the Greek gods, the local gods, and gods from throughout Europe. The Roman Empire. But we find that this little church grew out of all of this. And Paul leaves, and, and he's gone for a decade, and then they receive this letter. Can you imagine the excitement? The guy that helped them plant this church, that taught them all this time, and, and they haven't heard from him so long, and they receive this letter. Now, keep in mind that most folks in, in, the, in, in the church are, are probably illiterate. So this, this letter is read aloud for everyone and probably read over and over again. And, and people in the church saying, hey, can you, can you mention that part where Paul says, blah? Because that was awesome. I, I really need to hear that. And, and then he starts out, Paul and Timothy. And it's interesting because in almost every other letter Paul, 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 that Paul has written in the Bible, Paul introduces himself as Paul, as an, uh, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do it here because he wants to get a message across. A message about partnership, about service. And you can listen to the rest of that chapter 1 teaching in last week's message, but I want to quickly jump down to verses 9 and 10 because Paul prays this awesome prayer for their knowledge and discernment of God's vision for their lives and their community. So verse 9. And this I pray that you, your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The vision for a community is not determined by a person, an elder, a leader, or a pastor, and then just force-fed to a community. We are to pray for knowledge and discernment together. That's what communities do. And Paul was wanting the Philippian church to be able to discern what is best for their lives, what's best for their faith, their character development, their relationships, their community. And he didn't want them to be satisfied with where they were at. He wanted them to abound. He wanted them to grow because God wants us to thrive. He doesn't want us just to be complacent with our lives. I have a 10-month-old daughter. Her name is Sienna. And when she was born, she was close to 7 pounds. And 10 months later, she's more than tripled her weight. And there are days I wake up and, and I'm, I'm just amazed that she's grown, like overnight. Like She's grown. Like, she's grown. And it's so fast. She's walking already. And, and it's actually miraculous to me because at this rate, she's going to be over 200 pounds when she's three. <laughs> and so... The, the miracle of growth and, and thriving. But, but it's something only God causes and only God can provide the best knowledge, the best discernment. So I also have a soon to be three year old who's going on 16. And she negotiates with me on things. I'm like, all right, honey, let's go to bed. OK, Dad. All right. We're going to read two books. Five. Three. Four. Four. So. And do you know how many times I've visited the pediatrician with those two girls? A lot. I mean, I have to pay co-pays. And, and after, um, after they were born, right, they're in the hospital already. So after that, then you go back in two days later. After that, you go back in two weeks later. And then after that, you go every month. And... And then until they're, uh, I think it was six months, every month until six months or something like that. And then they go every other month until they're 12 months old. And then it's every three months until they're two years old. And then it's every year. <sighs> Fine, I have a three-year-old. We only have to go once a year. It's awesome. And so that's a lot of visits. And, and that's if the babies are healthy. Can you imagine if they are not? And every time my babies go in for a visit, they always weigh them. They always measure them, and they always measure the head circumference. Why? Well, one of the primary reasons is growth failure, or failure to thrive, FTT. If any of you are in the healthcare profession, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's something that healthcare providers monitor really closely because if the reasons why a baby fails to thrive aren't found out, the baby's health is at risk. They might even die. 
And that's not what God wants for you, nor is it what, what, what God wants for the community. And so as we look over this letter, we'll see what Paul wrote to the Philippian community in regards to growing spiritually, to avoid having failure to, to thrive as followers of Jesus. And we'll see these themes of, of joy and, and hopefully grow to appreciate servanthood more deeply. And we'll also get a chance to find out together how, how we discern God's best as individuals as well as a community. Before we get into our verses for this week, I'd like to do a review of last week's verses. But, but just focus it on two gifts God gave to the Philippian church. Gifts he makes available to us as well right now. And so the first gift is he gives them a gift of mission. He gives them a purpose, a particular task given to the group to carry out. And then he gives a second gift. He gives them a promise. He gives them an assurance that something will certainly happen or certainly be done. So let's first talk about mission. And in a business, that's my background before I was a pastor, in business, executives will meet with, with management consultants. And one of the first questions a management consultant will, will ask is, what business are you in? So let's say someone came to us as a church and asked us, what business are you in? How would we answer? I think Paul would refer to verse 5. And he uses this phrase, fellowship in the gospel. The word gospel gets confusing sometimes, but simply put, it means good news. Gospel means good news, and we all like good news. Right? We like to spread good news. When I was getting married, or when, when my wife was pregnant, or when my children were born, I, I couldn't wait to let people know. I still have like phone logs from that time, and all the pictures that I sent out and stuff like that. People want to spread good news. And when there's a, a sale on baby things, that news is spread amongst all the moms. And when, when a new restaurant is open with great food, I find out about it. And when there's a new cute single gal in the church, all the single guys find out about the good news. Good news. We all like to share it, right? And the gospel is good news. It's the best news ever. And the news that God is in, in, in this person of Jesus and God became human. God incarnate Jesus lived among us and, and died on a cross. He resurrected three days later, forgiving our sins, redeeming the world and providing hope to all. This is the best news ever. And it's spread like good news should spread. You can't stop good news. It likes to spread. That's the business we're in. That's our business. We're in the good news business. So start spreading the news. And first and foremost to our mission is not the conducting of Sunday services, nor is it facilitating programs. Those are just components to our mission. Our mission is helping people encounter Jesus. And once they meet the real Jesus, we can only pray that they will fall in love with him and follow him. And we need to understand this mission if we're going to grow. If we are going to thrive, this is mission critical. And in the late 1700s, um, there were hundreds, if not even thousands of sea vessels that, that sailed along the, these important shipping lanes running along the East Coast. And, and they passed Nantucket Island in Massachusetts. So navigation was, was done without any types of modern technology. And that made it really difficult for the ships to deal with, with the waters and the weathers in, in that area. And it led to over 700 shipwrecks in the surrounding waters of Nantucket. And it came to be known as a graveyard of the Atlantic. And mariners involved in a shipwreck were, were likely to die, even if they made it to shore, because there was no shelter for them afterwards. They would still die. Hypothermia or the elements. Well, the people living in, in, in those maritime communities around Nantucket, they were faced with a large, this large number of shipwrecks happening right in front of them and, and the tragic loss of life. So they banded together to do something about it. They got into the life-saving business. And the Humane Society of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts came together to figure out how to save lives and address all those needless deaths re resulting from shipwrecks and from drownings. 
And they focused on selfless, life-saving rescues and preventing those tragedies. They sponsored public lectures. They published research studies. They, they encouraged innovation of, of life-saving techniques and resuscitation. And, and they financed rescue measures by, by creating life-saving huts and placing them all around the shore so that when they, when they did save somebody, they can bring them in there and, and warm them up. And, and placing, placing rescue boats every so often along the shore and the equipment. Um, all filled with this stuff and wagon, and they would bring the horses out to drag this stuff out. And they were all volunteer lifesavers. And they were all gathered and banded around this one thing of, of life-saving. And when people would notice a ship at sea in danger, the volunteers would, would haul their equipment as close to the ship as possible, just kind of follow it along. And, and life-saving volunteers would, would hear of the danger, like, oh, a ship is sinking. So they'd tell people in the town and, and those people in the town would drop everything to dedicate their lives to saving other lives. No money, no fame. They risked their life so others may live. To save someone they didn't know simply because they valued, they loved life. And the lifesaver's motto is, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And over time, things changed. Life-saving from this small volunteer community became the responsibility of the U.S. Coast Guard. Attitudes changed as well from, from these selfless actions of sacrifice from volunteers to leaving it to the so-called pros. Those who are better trained, better equipped, better schooled, and they're paid to do it. And funny thing is, they couldn't bring themselves to dissolve the group. This life-saving group still meets. They don't do rescues off of Nantucket anymore. But they have a museum in Nantucket recognizing lifesavers and holding special events. And this group still exists, but they're not in the lifesaving business anymore. Aren't there so many similarities to a church? How we, how we start out with such passion, being selfless and sacrificing ourselves to save others, sacrificing our time, our money, our energy, our resources to save lives for free. You actually even pay for it. Not for fame. And then after a while, we forget that we're in the life-saving business. And then as a group, many churches can't bring themselves to dissolve. Living off of past laurels, enjoying each other's fellowship, continuing Sunday services, running programs. But they're museums. They're not dynamic churches filled with the Spirit doing His work. I see it all the time. I know of many churches like this, too many of them. Whether it's because of their endowments or properties or investments, whatever they have that just keeps them sustained, they're able to just keep chugging along year after year, and, but their mission has changed. They're not busy looking for endangered lives anymore. They're busy looking at themselves and their club. And many churches out there are, are busy leaving it to the hands of professionals. Forgetting to get behind the community, to, to be on the lookout for the endangered lives. Leaving it to the pastor or leaving it to the staff. People who are going to die without you, without the volunteers, who are all around in our neighborhood, schools, offices. Jesus put the rescue efforts in the hands of volunteers. Did you know that? Look at the disciples. But many churches are more concerned about Sunday service. Their buildings, their programs, their budgets, their staff. But they aren't really in the life-saving business. That's sad. May we not become like that. And if we do, God forbid, but if we do, it won't be long for us to have failure to thrive written on us. We are in the life-saving business. Jesus is looking for those individuals, those communities where people unite and they say, that is not happening on my watch. I am watching that boat. If I see a life in danger, I'm ready to go. I have, I have my rescue equipment. I have my entire community. I'm ready to drop everything to help save a life. And recognize that we don't save people, right? God saves people. But God does use us in the process. And for regeneration, we have our work cut out for us because there are a lot of drowning people in Oakland. Emeryville, Berkeley, all over the East Bay who don't know Jesus. And we have a mission that's not yet complete. A mission that needs an entire community to rally around because lives are at stake. 
And we need to recognize we have fellowship in the gospel. We need to identify how we fit into that. What will you bring to the community to help those who, whose lives are in danger? Will you pray? What will you do? What will you say? We have to engage in the sinking boat because lives are on it. We can't stay on the shore. We can't stay in the church. Jesus gave his life. Paul gave his life. Millions have given their lives because they were in the life-saving business. They were in the good news business. And even though it means going into the center of danger, they delivered it. That's the business we're in. We are bringing good news and assisting people in encountering Jesus. Our mission can be scary. But we're given a promise. The second gift. Verse 6, chapter 1. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Has anyone ever started a good work and not finished it? I have a membership to a health club. I know it may not look like it, but I do. And you know when I hate going to the gym the most? Yes, all year long. But, um, but do you know what month I hate the most? January. Because everyone makes those New Year resolutions. I'm going to go to the gym. And the gym is crazy packed in January. And um, last month, I'm driving through Gold's Gym, packed out. You couldn't see any equipment open. I just drove by this evening, seven people in the whole gym. And um, it, it was packed out just last month. And each machine is being used, right? People on treadmill and Stairmasters and people wearing spandex who shouldn't be wearing spandex. It's like, it's now February, just like a month later. And it's not nearly as full as last month. And, and I know that by the end of the year, those who started this good work will not have completed it. A show of hands. How many of you have started something and not finished it? Lifestyle changes, saying like, oh, I want to stop smoking or... or uh, um, Home repairs, you know, oh, I'm going to do this to my house or diets, diets, reading the Bible in a year, um, journaling. This is mine. I always say, oh, I'm going to journal this year every day. I have January spelled out and then like nothing. Um, praying more. All these things. But God always finishes what he starts. He has never failed to finish. When he starts something, he finishes it. God began a good work in a couple of escaped convicts, a businesswoman and a jailer in Philippi 2,000 years ago. And today we have this spirit-filled letter ministering to us. Think about what the first church in Europe inspired in the span of 2,000 years. Um, just think of like the arts, the humanities, the, the, the sciences, the, the impact on Western civilization. And in 2009, we can see the, the influences of the early church and, and, and how, it, how it changed the world. But, but who would have ever guessed that the first church in Europe was made up of those guys who could pull something like this off? Some, some escaped convicts, a jailer, and, and, and a businesswoman. Nobody would have thought that. It's all because God began a good work, and He's completing it. And God began a good work in regeneration right here in Oakland. The years of, of devout people praying, learning, worshiping, listening, serving, giving, um, uh, just doing all of this together. It's paying off. We started with around a dozen people, right? In, in the back of a nightclub, in this room in, in the nightclub where um, we actually had to clean up like needles and, and um, other things I can't say. Um, we had to clean things up and... And, and we've been through some rough patches. And our, our, our most recent rough patch was just this past nine months. But he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. God has been very faithful to us. Nine months ago, our senior pastor resigned. And, and we had no idea what was going to happen. We didn't know if we were going to have to like shut the doors, dissolve the church, whatever. We didn't know. It was just uncertain. Nine months ago, we had a few babies at the church. Now we need three classrooms, a fellowship area, and a kitchen for them. Nine months ago, our involvement with the kids and the youth in the neighborhood was just limited to, to Sunday services and, and Taekwondo. 
But now that Taekwondo has over 100 kids on that roster. And the, and the kids and the youth are getting involved in Funktown Farm. And we're, we're active in tutoring in the lowest scoring elementary school in all of Oakland. Not for long, by the way. Building relationships with more kids and youth around here than ever before. There's not a kid around this neighborhood that doesn't know us. And nine months ago, we had to renegotiate our lease because, because we weren't certain what was going to happen. We're like, I don't know. We, can we change this? Because we don't know. We don't know what's happening. And, and now that the very conference that owns these facilities, they've partnered with us to, to transform our facilities across the street into more of a community center. They've invested themselves. Um, they've invested more than, than any elder or myself would have thought they would have invested. We, should, we, were, we were there just several weeks ago. Um, there was board members from the conference that came out and, and we were talking and, and we had uh, our elders there as well. And we're talking and sharing all this stuff. After that meeting, they were ready to open a checking account with us. What we wanted to do, the vision that we had for here. Looking at updating the kitchen facilities for the Cross Streets homeless ministry. But you know, it's not just the homeless ministry. The working poor are showing up there now. Things are, things are tough out there. And, and others who use the kitchen for, for various types of ministry, installing a, a disabled restroom, updating the shower facility so that, so that we can better host um, teams that want to participate in our urban, our urban ministry ex- immersion experience. You probably didn't even know that we had such a thing, right? But we've hosted teams from out of state, out of the country, to come here and, and learn about inner city missions. Installing a community office for, for Oakland teachers to have meetings, for law enforcement to complete paperwork, for, for counselors to advise clients, for our neighborhood leaders to meet there and talk about what's going on here. How are we going to get involved with disaster recovery or, or crime that's happening in the neighborhood? How are we going to partner with law enforcement to make sure things are going better? We've never done more than one mission trip a year. And in the past nine months, we've sent Tim and Liz Forney to Romania to minister to orphans. We're sending Nate and his team to Ukraine to run summer camps for orphans. We're sending an optometry team to Kenya to serve those kids at Rohi. And Nate's motto for missions is, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And I can tell you as a pastor here for the past eight years, I've witnessed more transformation in the lives of people in the past nine months than any other like year period prior. The marriages that have been reconciled, the families being restored, addictions being broken, lives being changed, people knowing about Jesus and accepting him into their life. And there's actually so much more that I can share that has just happened in this past nine months. But we're limited on time. So I think I'm getting it when Paul says in in verses three through five, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That's how I feel. I love you. I love the people in this church. I think many of you feel the same way, maybe not towards me, but towards each other. And and within organizations, there, there are three types of relationships in organizations that I like to highlight. There are customers, there are employees and there are partners. Customers just consume. They, 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 they're there just to receive a good or receive a service. They want their expectations to be met. They want to be given what they're looking for. Empl- employees are paid by someone to work. They, they, they do what they're told. They have a job description and they're held to fulfill those obligations, but, but they aren't held accountable to things outside of that. And there's a likelihood that if you ask them to do things outside of that, they're going to ask for a raise. And, and then we have a partner. A partner is someone who takes ownership. They help in whatever way that they can and and they share in the risks of an organization. They show initiative and they contribute to an organization with their service, their energy, their resources. And some of you are are already partners in the ministry. And I'm hopeful that God will be calling those of you um, who look at your role as being a customer or an employee into becoming a partner. A partner in the life-saving business. A partner in the good news business. Being a partner is where you experience the full richness within an organization. Customers consume, but, but there's, there's, not, there's not much more than that, just that short-lived benefit. Employees get something out of the relationship, but it's a linear benefit. I work an hour, you pay me for an hour. 
Partners. Partner allows you to contribute extensively and it allows you to reap the benefits that are much greater than what you actually put in. You share in the profits. When our community comes together as partners, takes initiatives and invests ourselves fully into the life-saving business, we will reap incredible benefits. Things we won't necessarily see now or even in the near future, but the things that started in Philippi changed all of Western civilization. Let's now take a closer look at Paul, who who we see isn't in such a good situation. But even though things aren't good, he has joy that can't be taken away. And this gets me thinking as to the kind of people God wants us to be, the kind of community God wants us to have here at Regeneration. Verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. Paul is encouraging us to have richer knowledge of God. To grow spiritually and and have deeper relationships with God. To to know Him better. But how does this happen? What does it look like? Perhaps it's being more patient with a difficult person. Helping the poor with the things that you do have. Boldness in sharing Jesus. Maybe service needs to become more of a lifestyle where where humility is valued more than recognition or or getting your agenda, agenda accomplished. So how do we encourage this type of growth? How do people become more like Jesus? And I think the, the primary way God does it is, is in terms of cultivating spiritual growth is found in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Spiritual growth is not primarily just stuffing more information in your head. Even though that information is really important. But the primary way to grow is to live your your life in adversity. You're guaranteed to have adversity in your life because God loves you. He cares very much that you grow. Now, if you don't have any problems, come see me after the service and I'll give you one. So... So how did Paul respond to adversity in his life? Okay, we're finally into verse 12. Let's read. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that this, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren of the Lord, having become confident in, by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affection, affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. What's going on with Paul? Why is he able to respond this way? Because Paul understands that circumstances don't control his life. Situations don't dictate his feelings. Paul is not at the mercy of circumstances to dictate whether he is joyful or if he's full of sorrow. How is that possible? Because he believes that Jesus is Lord. And because of this belief and and his faith in Jesus, it results in joy. Have you ever wondered how two different people who are put in identical situations with the same exact circumstances end up with totally, totally different outcomes? The way they respond is totally different. Why? They believe in two totally different things even though the circumstances are the same. For example, look at how dogs and cats respond to the same exact circumstances. So a dog recognizes that you take care of me. You play with me. You pet me. You shelter me. You must be God. That's how my dog, he does that thing. He does this thing where he worships me like that. A cat says, you take care of me, you play with me, you pet me, and you shelter me. I must be God. (laughs) They're 
the same set of circumstances. But the beliefs are totally different, which result in very different responses. So, so here we have Paul who has this really bad circumstance. He's locked up and, and not really able to do what he really wants. He, he wants to be going sailing and going different places and, and planting churches and supporting people. And, but he's not. He's locked up. But you know, he's changed it. He, he's sharing the good news in prison then. Right? And not only that, but, but he's not sure what's going to become of him. He might die. He's not in a very good situation. So some people in the government um, don't like him. Right? And there's some people, some Christians that have kind of turned on him. Paul has problems. And they're not small. His life is at stake. There's betrayal there. And he knows that the church in Philippi is so concerned, so he writes to them. Verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Can you sense the intimacy that he has with this church? That Paul deeply loves the Philippian church and he wants them to know that even though the circumstances are so grim, his, his, his beliefs have, have allowed him to respond in a positive way, that he's furthering the gospel. Sure, he's not sailing from place to place anymore, sharing about Jesus, planting churches, but now he has a captive audience, right? A captive audience in the guards who are watching him. Paul is chained and watched by the palace guards in the praetorium. These are the, the, the elite palace guards. They, they're like 9,000 strong. And Paul has made a, a beautiful, beautiful response out of a bad situation because of his beliefs in Jesus. Paul was chained to a guard at all times. Bathroom, sleeping, whatever. He was chained to him at all times. And during those times, Paul preached to them for hours. You thought this was bad. I mean, where could the guard go? They're chained to him, right? Like, they're sleeping. He's probably preaching in his sleep. Hey, man, you need to get saved, bro. And he's like, shut up, dude, just shut up. And they're chained to each other, right? And they were encountering Jesus. And the book of Acts tells us about two governors, Felix and Festus, who hear about the gospel. There's a king named Herod Agrippa. There are Roman centurions. There are military personnel and their families hearing the gospel. God knew exactly what he was doing. How else could they have heard the gospel? Those officials. Even though the circumstances were not good, it worked because Paul did not let the circumstances run his life. He let Jesus run his life. And no one would ever have a strategy like that, right? I have a mission idea. I'm going to get arrested by the Roman Empire and be chained to guards and preach to them. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in, in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and, and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Our spiritual lives will have difficult times. Tough circumstances are bound to come before us. But our belief is in Jesus and that he is Lord, which results in joy. So no matter what the circumstances we experience, joy with Jesus Life is full of difficulty. You can't get around that. But Jesus is Lord. Therefore, I'll rejoice. There are times in Scripture that different people faced with the same set of circumstances come to very different outcomes depending on their beliefs. Look at when Moses sent out the twelve to, to look at the promised land. All of them had the same situation in front of them. They all faced the same circumstances. They all had the same opportunities. They, they were all confronted with the same enemies. Ten of them come back to Moses and say, No way, man. Even though God tells us to, no way. Yes, I know it's flowing with milk and honey, I know, but, but you don't know what we saw. The people there are mean. They are nasty. They, they say mean things. 
I mean, the Amalekites are there, the, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the websites, the porn sites. They're all there. We, we should go back to Egypt. But then there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who were surveying the land, the exact same city, and said, let's do this. I ain't scared. Right? And why such a difference? Because of the belief. Joshua and Caleb believed that God would take care of everything like He said He would. Paul believes God will take care of everything like He said He would. That's what we need to do. We need to be, believe that God will take care of everything He said He would. He'll take care of you. And Paul is one bad dude. He's the type of Christian that's a force to be reckoned with because his expectations are that his circumstances won't be easy or trouble-free while he's following Jesus. How in the world can you stop that? I know you're going to be mean to me, but I'm going to love you anyway. I know you're going to hurt me. I'm going to love you anyway. How in the world do you stop that? And he expects challenging circumstances, so it doesn't bother him when he's faced with adversity. His mission in life isn't to situate himself in, in comfort. And his mission is to be an instrument of good news, to be a life-saving instrument, and to allow himself to be a means of sharing God's love, his grace, his peace, his power, wherever he's at and whatever circumstances he's faced with. If Paul didn't face the adversity before that jail term, you know, the shipwrecks and bitten by snakes and all that kind of stuff, do you think he would be able to do this? God prepared him for this. God allowed that to happen for this. And now he's unstoppable because of his belief in Jesus. And may we have the same conviction as Paul so that Jesus dictates our response, not our circumstances. And may we focus more on dedicating our lives in service to God and being partners with him in the kingdom rather than dedicating our lives towards changing our circumstances. And there's this thought in our society that we're entitled to change our circumstances. Let's just call it circumstance improvement Syndrome, where, where you spend your life trying to upgrade everything in your life. You're, you're a customer, you're a consumer of your own life. That's our society. Our society spends its time improving its circumstances. But improving circumstances doesn't produce joy. When, when we think of people who can improve, them, improve their circumstances, we probably think of the rich who, who do what they want, when they want, how they want. But can you really say with 100% certainty that the rich are the most joyful people in the world? Can we say that? Yet we find ourselves focusing on circumstances. We want, to, uh, we want a supposed upgrade to our life by figuring out ways we can improve circumstances. But that doesn't produce joy. And the sad thing is that the way that it eats at us is, is so slow and it's so subtle that we don't even notice it in our society. And society includes you and I, Christians, followers of Jesus. And, and, we, and, and often we're guilty of this. We spend our lives wanting a different set of circumstances. Someone else's marriage. Someone else's job. Someone else's living situation. Someone else's body. Lifestyle. Talents. Friends. Gifts. Connections. House. Stuff. And this can sneak into our spiritual lives as well. This is just normal in our society. This is a given. This is the autopilot of our society. And the only way to change that is you have to flip the switch. To stop thinking that God's job is making sure that all of your circumstances in life are supposed to be easy and pleasant. To flip the switch and to stop thinking that God exists just to upgrade your circumstances of your life. What you do, what you own, where you live, when you're getting married, who you're with or who you're not with. Can we identify what threatens us individually and as a community from experiencing all that God has for us? Can we identify the obstacles that, that keep us from being what God wants us to be? Paul's threat was pretty serious. His biggest threat was that people wanted to kill him. And the most powerful empire at the time was not on his side. What is our threat? I believe regeneration's greatest threat is the worldly culture of the society that we live in. We live in the most financially powerful country in the world, even though 
this hard economic time has hit us, we are still the most powerful and economically prosperous. Not only that, but we live in California. Did you know that if California itself, it, it, by itself, if you took it out and was a country by itself, would have one of the largest GDPs in the world? It's either seven, eight, nine, or ten. It's one of the one of those up there. Just California itself. And and from that, we're in the Bay Area, which is one of the top regions responsible for California being an economic powerhouse and a global power. The greatest threat we have is the pressure we face from greed, from materialism, from overindulgence, from covetousness, from excessive consumption, from perfectionism, from pride, from arrogance. Having the mentality of a customer. And I think our greatest threat is that we'll spend our lives trying to improve our circumstances, trying to enhance our lifestyle. And given where we live, we're going to need to be very careful to make sure that our mission is not to create a church full of satisfied customers. That's wrong. That's horribly wrong. I think our church needs to experience some poorly run services, some, some really bad messages, right? Other things that, that customers are looking for, but just won't find in our church because we're not a church with satisfied customers. We are not a customer. Because of this, we, we have to be careful about, especially um, since, since we live here, right? In, in America and, 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 and the times we live in. It's very much a part of our culture to think this way. And you guys are familiar with the gourmet ghetto in Berkeley, right? I am very familiar with the gourmet ghetto in Berkeley. Many credit California cuisine coming out of there, right? Chez Panisse is there. The very first Pete's Coffee is in the gourmet ghetto. Gourmet food, gourmet coffee, that, that's a good combination. And it's our job at those times to consume and, and to let them know if, if we think that their quality is slipping so, so that those gourmet standards are met because I'm a consumer and, and I need those gourmet standards met. The cheese board is there. They have great cheese. And let me tell you, those, those, those people know how to make it. And, and they also know how to bake. They are a gourmet cheese provider. My job is to consume their cheese, right? And to let them know if the quality is not there, right? Oh, you're brave. No good today. So, this is, this is what we have to be really, really careful about. We don't want to start thinking about region as a, as a really good religious services provider. Like a gourmet church, where my job is just to consume spiritual services. And we live in a part of the world where it's all about improving our circumstances and upgrading our lifestyles, upgrading our church experience. And we have the best of everything here. We have the best restaurant, so you can go to a really nice restaurant and eat really good gourmet food. We have the best store, so you can go to really nice stores and, and get really good gourmet stuff. And you can even situate it as such that, that you go to a really nice gourmet church. And I want to be really clear about something. We are not in the religious services business. We are not. No way. Not on my watch. Not on our elders' watch. We are not a religious services provider. We are partners in the life-saving business. We are partners in the good news business along with all the brothers and sisters all around the world. That's the business we're in. And it's so easy to have this customer mentality. Let's think about what it looks like. When I go down the road as a customer, I, I get a, a, a consumer mentality, and it's reflected in my attitude and how I live, because I think that you owe me. I'm purchasing something. You better give me the best. And I'm not growing spiritually any longer. And because my spiritual life has, has slowed to a standstill, I start blaming others for my lack of growth. I start looking around and asking, whose fault is it that I'm not growing spiritually? It must be your messages. It must be the worship service. It must be, we don't have enough community groups. We, you, you don't have enough service opportunities. You, you guys don't do blah, blah, blah. How are we going to partner? And I think that Someone besides myself is going to make growth happen in me spiritually, right? 
And I get more focused on me. So, so then I get more critical. I get more unsatisfied. And I complain more and more and, and about how I'm unsatisfied. Paul is saying that it's not about being a customer. It's not about our circumstances. And instead of putting all of our energy into wondering how our circumstances can be different, we should ask God how we're going to deal with those circumstances together in partnership with Him and together in community. How are we going to partner in the life-saving and the good news business with God and with each other? We have so many resources and gifts within our community. How do we band together to save lives and spread the good news? Then our negative circumstances become opportunities. Nine months ago, this became an opportunity to do something miraculous and prove, and it proves to me what I really believe. I talk to pastors all the time that, were, that walked with me through the nine-month period until now. Not one believed that we would be where we are right now. Not one. God did. God did. And in every situation, we have an opportunity to prove to ourselves what we truly believe. Some of our circumstances work out really well, like this. But sometimes they end up locked behind bars and in chains. Both are good. Because Jesus is God. And through it all, we, we must remember that God is faithful. We often think that we're in control of so much in our lives and we get irritated when we don't get our way. But, but if you're a follower of Jesus, do you want to be in control anyway? You don't want to have control, right? You want to submit that to God. A God who is so faithful. He's faith, faithful when things look really bad. Things look really bad to us nine months ago. When the hurt and the pain in your life just keeps getting deeper and deeper. When the situation seems to be worsening, he's faithful. So I want you to do something this week. I want you to identify something in your life where your circumstances are not how you want them to be. And maybe it's a relationship or a lack of one or a marriage or your finances or your lack of work or maybe your health or, or something else that I haven't mentioned. But you, you take it as a pretty, pretty serious thing. And when you pray about these circumstances, instead of praying to God to change those circumstances, focus your prayers on what God wants to do in partnership with you within those circumstances. Pray about how the community can be involved in your circumstances. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Paul. Thank you for filling him with your spirit to pen these words to us, this, this letter that ministers to us still 2,000 years later. I, God, I ask God that you would change our, our, our customer mentality, our employee mentality, that you would give us a partner mentality to partner in, in kingdom works, to be in the life-saving business, to be in the good news business. In Jesus' name, amen.